This is a Federal News Network podcast. Machines can read your fingerprints, your handprints, your face, and your eyes, but biometric recognition technology is far from perfected. That's why the Homeland Security Department's Science and Technology Directorate is planning its third annual biometric technology rally taking place this fall. For a look at the state of the art, we turn to the director of the S&T's Biometric and Identity Technology Center, Arun Vemuri. Mr. Vemuri, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. And I guess I thought that facial recognition was kind of a done deal. It's working in airports and so forth, and CBP is using it, and you name it. So what are the frontiers left in biometric recognition, and are we primarily talking facial for the purposes of the upcoming rally? To be honest with you, one of these things is these technologies are never completely done. We can always further reduce errors and make things work a little bit more effectively. A lot of the work where people have been citing biometric performance or in particular facial recognition performance is focused on matching algorithms. The real challenge, though, is in the real world, we have people interacting with cameras, cameras that have to choose and take the best photo. Are people even looking at the camera? So there are a lot of other things that are part of the overall system that need to be optimized. So we're looking at trying to optimize the entire system, the entire process to reduce errors and help people expeditiously get through the screening process. I know that uh, one of the challenges has been twins for a long time. Is there progress on that count that you're aware of? That work is still progressing. There are actually some groups out there that are specifically running research involving twins to better distinguish between algorithm performance to figure out how well they're working or uh, where there continues to be some, some challenges. And the mask, of course, has become a worldwide phenomenon. And I know that some of the vendors are working on facial recognition that has the mask on. It doesn't work on my phone. But my question there is, is that even possible, do you think, in such a way that would give a homeland security level of assurance that just seeing the eyes and perhaps the nose would be sufficient? Uh, I think the short answer there is uh, that the results have been surprisingly promising and very good so far. So I know NIST, you might be familiar with some NIST reports that were done that were published sure. last year. Uh, where they talked about this with matching algorithms, like, again, the software. Uh, We ran a test last year (laughs) to adapt to the COVID environment and realities, and we looked at how well the camera systems would collect a good face, even though someone was wearing a mask, as well as the matching algorithm performance. The good news there was that the top-performing combination of camera system and matching algorithm resulted in the right decision about 96% of the time. That was the best out of 60 combinations. The worst performance, or let's say the median performance, was actually closer to 77%. So while there are some systems that can work exceedingly well, there's still a lot of room for improvement across the board. Yeah, and 96% sounds decent, but that's still 40,000 people out of a million that could be mistaken through airports and cargo container ship landings and cruise ships. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why we're working on further trying to improve these technologies. And again, you've got this fair coming up, this technology fair. Do you get input from the various DHS components that use facial recognition? And do they say to you, hey, can you get people to look into this or that, depending on what their situation might be? Yeah, so that's a good point. So one of the things that we do is we look not only just to one DHS component, we look across DHS components and missions, and we kind of abstract out the technical pieces, right? So instead of saying, we need this to work in this type of airport or this type of port of entry or something like that, we actually focus on, okay, it needs to work within this square footage, within this type of lighting environment, and then it has to be under four seconds. So we're really pushing the technology companies to really think about 
not in terms of a specific deployment, but in terms of things uh, like broad, broader uh, set of performance characteristics so that we can fit this into a wide variety of missions. Sure. I've heard another one of the challenges is facial recognition at great distance with telephoto lenses when there's intervening atmospheric distortions that can come in and heat waves and that kind of thing. Uh, that that's absolutely true. So any any of these different conditions can come into play. You know, it could just be as simple as really challenging lighting indoors. So there's a number of different places where while we have really good matching algorithms, how we take the photo hasn't really been optimized yet. And there's still a lot of room for improvement there, whether it's outdoors in uncontrolled environments or even indoors. And, you know, people are wearing masks or there's uncontrolled lighting or people just aren't paying attention and looking at the camera. We're speaking with Arun Vamuri. He's director of the Biometric and Identity Technology Center at the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. And in dealing with the vendors and holding the fair, and we'll get into some of the details there in a moment, do you find that this area of technology attracts some of the best and brightest young minds? Because in some ways, it's an application of artificial intelligence. Yeah, great question. We're actually seeing this area of work has benefited a lot from a lot of the recent research that's going on in in artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision, the things that are happening with deep convolutional neural networks. There's a lot of fascinating things that are here that honestly, had we been talking about this, you know, 12 years ago, I would have been surprised by the level of performance we see today. These things are all enabled by the massive improvements we've seen in some of these underlying technologies and methodologies. And tell us about the upcoming rally. What goes on there? Who attends? And how does it all work? So the biometric rally is a way for S&T to engage directly with industry. So we're working with them to help make sure they have a better understanding of generalized DHS use cases, to talk more about performance, and really to focus on giving them an opportunity to differentiate their product and their technologies from others, as well as provide them concrete feedback so they can go back and make the technologies better. Uh, We share these results with DHS stakeholders, U.S. government stakeholders, and then our international partners who also have equities around border security and controls as well. And does this have kind of a trade show fair feel to it? Do people bring in cameras and equipment and do people walk by with their faces and see what goes on? Well, first and foremost, this is a, you know, a test, a research test and development event, but we absolutely want to bring in the VIPs. Last year was the first time we didn't have a in-person VIP day, obviously due to COVID-19. However, what we almost always do is we set aside either a half day or a full day where we have DHS, U.S. government, and then some of our uh, stakeholders from critical infrastructure sectors come in so that they can see and interact with the technologies themselves. Uh, I think it's fair to say at this point, most people's Uh, Other than, you know, to your point, your smartphone, their exposure to things like facial recognition or biometric technologies are what they see in movies and TV shows. And that's not entirely correct. So we want people to see and feel and understand what the technologies can really do and interact with them in person. And on the back end of all of this application of technology, there is the ongoing issue of training databases. And I've heard that, you know, there's progress being made there where At one point, everyone was using the same set of million faces somewhere from Google Faces or something like that. I forget the details. But that there was a need for more diversity of racial diversity and so forth in the training databases, because without that end, it's never going to work in the field once you deploy it properly. And what do you see going on in that end of things? 
I think it's definitely true that we want, um, you know, DHS doesn't train algorithms, right? But we rely upon companies that are developing face recognition algorithms to make sure that they do a good job of training. Uh, and more data is usually better. What's also important too, though, is making sure that it has uh, the diversity of conditions and the diversity of demographics that we want to have. I, I guess I would go on beyond. It's not just about the size of the training data set. We think that there are other things that can be done in the training process, the design of the model, the cost functions that are also incredibly important to make sure that these things work accurately and hopefully work fairly. Within the rally, one of the things that we are very careful to do is make sure that we bring in a diverse set of volunteers. So we, we bring in about 600 people of various gender, race, age, uh, familiarity with biometric technologies. Actually, you know, I think it's fair to say one of the biggest challenges with using these technologies is actually the human factors or the affordance, the how to, un how to use the technology. And that actually is the primary source of errors over other types of issues. The other thing you, you mentioned about with uh, assessing performance with, uh, with different demographic groups, we know that this is very important. This is why we bring in the volunteer sets that we do. But we're also working with our interagency partners, and we're actually serving as the editor of a couple of international standards on how to assess the performance of these technologies and do so in a technically rigorous way to figure out whether or not these effects are present and to what degree they're present. And let me ask you this. Has the rise of the transgender sensitivity affected facial recognition? Is that a factor nowadays? To a degree, it appears it could be. It looks like some algorithms are using information like gender, race, and age, either directly or indirectly, as part of the information they use to make the matching decisions. Our goal as DHS is that the technology should work for everybody, regardless of what gender, race, age that you present. You know, if you're working makeup or not, you should still be recognizable and be allowed to proceed through the process. So we want these things to be robust to uh, anything that a person might do. You know, we were talking earlier about haircuts. You know, if you change your beard, if you change your hair, if you're wearing makeup, if you're not wearing makeup, the technology should work seamlessly for anyone. Got it. And just the rally takes place when and where? Yeah, the rally will be taking place uh, this fall. It'll be the last week of September going into the first week of October. We're actually going to be doing an informational webinar for interested companies where they will be able to listen in and learn more about our process and how we plan to test. And we're really looking forward to having a good group of, of technology companies participate this year. But it will be in person. All the testing has to be in person. They can't sure. just send us an algorithm. So even last year, despite COVID-19, we had a number of companies that it was a lot of logistical issues that we had to work through, a lot of face masks, a lot of hand sanitizer and plexiglass. But we ran the test last year. Uh, we had six camera systems come in despite the travel restrictions and the limitations there. We still worked with 600 volunteers, and we did testing over the course of three weeks. So it took longer because we had to go through all of the safety protocols, but we were able to run the test this year, we'll, we are planning for the same thing. Hopefully, things continue to, to go trend in the positive direction, and it won't take as long for us to run the test this year. Arun Vamuri is director of the Biometric and Identity Technology Center at the DHS Science and Technology Directorate. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to more about the rally at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deterred me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that's at the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, 
who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the, 
Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.